Hello, Tyler. Hello, Dwayne. Are you ready to talk about sentencing? I am indeed. Welcome to Top Priority, a podcast of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's podcast is on sentencing, and joining us today is Tyler Koteski. Thanks for being here, Tyler. Thanks, Dwayne. Happy to be here. So let's get right into sentencing. We, we've talked a bit about overcriminalization, as it is. We've talked a little bit about policing, and we've talked a little bit about the trial process, but really... Let's get into sentencing. What is it, from a, a stand-together community perspective, what is it that we are advocating for? Well, you know, in, in the context of the larger criminal justice system, we know that it's important to make sure that the public is safe and that people who commit crimes are held accountable. And while that's a, a crucial function, oftentimes in carrying out that role of enforcing the law, we kind of miss or discount another crucial role of our justice system, which is to make sure that those punishments are proportionate to the facts of the case, actually address to the maximum extent possible the underlying cause of somebody's criminal behavior. And when we have those overly harsh penalties that too often keep people incarcerated for longer than they should be, to be held accountable and to be able to effectively rehabilitate, you know, that's not only morally wrong, we'd argue, but it's also just impractical and can negatively uh, affect public safety based on the evidence we've got. Help, help me understand that better. Just break it down a little bit. How is it impractical and how does it work against public safety? So there's, there's uh, a lot of uh, research out there on the effects of various things on crime rates and recidivism. And it's super fascinating field and frankly, really uh, not as understood as we'd like. But one thing that we do know pretty well is that overall sentence length of all the things that might cause or detract from someone being likely to commit new crimes, uh, the evidence suggests that, that someone's sentence length alone is a really poor predictor of their future recidivism rate beyond maybe like a very short initial time period uh, that someone's behind bars. And you, you look at a lot more robust predictors of someone's potential recidivism, and that, those are things like how old someone is on their release. It could also be other things too, like someone's certainty that if they commit a criminal act, that they'll be caught. And so something like that implies that if our policing is more focused on, you know, improving the clearance rates, the rates at which um, arrests are made for crimes, right, that someone's certainty that they'll be caught and punished might go up. You know, and you look at in the last uh, Uniform Crime Report, which is this annual thing that the FBI releases on crime in the country, I think the violent crime clearance rate was about 45.5%. And about 17.6% for property crimes, which, you know, just in isolation is, is, uh, pretty low. And that's not to say that you think that the solution to that is necessarily this massive police crackdown, but it does imply 
things about prioritization of you know what we're focusing the most resources at from kind of a overcriminalization standpoint and whatnot. So rather than simply everyone we arrest, you know, giving these super long sentences, which the data suggests really doesn't impact recidivism one way or another, which implies more about uh, where the priorities should go. So again, in, in uh, holding folks accountable, let's let's focus on things that that work rather than detract. And I guess another thing to add too is particularly for, you know, maybe lower risk folks or people who maybe, you know, a, a very early offense that they've committed, particularly these, these uh, less risky folks, all things considered, you're unnecessarily exposed to prison in particular compared to some sort of, you know, probationary program or diversion situation there's actually some evidence that it could increase your risk just from being exposed to that environment when you might be more likely to succeed in other contexts. So at best, long sentences in isolation don't seem to have any positive impact on public safety. And in some circumstances, at worst, they could actually be negative. I th- I want to I want to really emphasize something here because this is this is arguments or or discussions. I think a lot of our our people have, and it's around this idea of of sentencing and punishment. And we we talk about our network vision. We exist to break barriers. We talk about the mutually reinforcing principles, equal rights, mutual benefit, openness, self actualization. One thing we we need to spend more time on, uh, in my opinion, this is my failing, honestly, is discussing the key institutions as well, and the key institution of government, which all of this falls squarely on is the key institution of government. Their their purpose is to secure and defend the rights of the individuals. Right. And so when we think about sentencing, when we think about criminal justice reform, we think about the fact that government should be there to, to investigate these things, to deal with these things. And as best they can make people whole, make the victims whole and punish those who, who would violate the rights of another. Um, one thing I I hear is that we need to be tough on crime and that the positions we take make us weak on crime. And I like to say, well, rather than be weak or tough, why don't we be smart on crime? And one conversation that I've had, it was actually, uh, imagine this, me going to the Antonin Scalia School of Law to talk about criminal justice reform. You want to talk about intimidating. I'm walking into this room thinking, I have a degree in horticulture. Why am I even <laughs> Why am I here? <laughs> but one thing we talked about is, is the proper role of uh, criminal justice should exist to make society safer. And that, that I think, is, is a, a point that we really should spend some time on. When we think about criminal justice, the criminal justice system... It should exist to make people safer. There are those who would say that harsh punishments result in making people safer because people it's incentivizing not going to prison, right? But there are also the arguments that say prison as it stands right now is really just a crime college and you can come out of there a better criminal than when you went in. And there's no results from that that lead us towards making society safe. 95% of people are going to get out of prison eventually. Shouldn't we be doing stuff that would make society safe? So how do you respond to those who say, look, I don't care about these people who go to prison. They've broken the law 
and they should be punished. And that's what prison should exist for is punishing these people. Well, I think that's a, a natural question that, uh, you know, of course comes up because in, in many ways that can be a, a default frame of reference that people can look at the system through. But I think what's a helpful kind of extra perspective that potentially change people's minds is kind of looking at some of the past data from history. And again, as you say, if we're talking about being smart on crime, let's look at, you know, what we know. And that is basically the federal and state prison population uh, between 1980 and 2009 when it peaked. Uh, basically, nearly quintupled from about 330,000 people in 1980 to over 1.6 million in 2009. And, you know, that outpaced the U.S.'s population during that time more than tenfold so again during this period of you know tougher on crime policies our our prison policy was vastly outpacing population growth however we know that and, and a lot of this was driven by uh what are called mandatory minimum sentences which were um, enacted to respond to uh rising crime in the 1970s and 1980s. And what mandatory minimums do is force judges to assign minimum punishments for anyone who is guilty of a certain offense and really takes the decision out of their hands to uh, tailor the potential punishment towards specific facts of the case. Let's let's stop there for a second yeah. because I think that's important. One of the things we go we go when we go deeper into our principles uh, that that are behind the vision that are behind these mutually reinforcing principles. They're supporting principles that, that, that go towards all these. And one of these principles is, is we talk about spontaneous order, but we also talk about knowledge. Knowledge is, is an important aspect of these principles. And when you start talking about mandatory minimums, you're talking about a lack of openness in this for, for judges to exercise the knowledge that they have there in front of them. And you're talking about a more centralized, closed system of sentencing that would mandate mandate sentences in places where it might not be appropriate. So we were actually we are actually closing off the use of knowledge for the most appropriate sentence, and that has resulted in, in situations that are really unjust, that that are really ineffective, and I you know some might argue cause more harm than good. Dwayne, I think you're absolutely right. It is really kind of everything that Hayek warned about with the knowledge problem as might regard the economy and central planning sort of applied to the justice system in, in uh, having a bunch of, you know, legislators in, in Washington or state capitals basically, you know, second guess the ability of the judge who has all of that local knowledge about what may have happened in an individual case, what we know about victim, defendants, um, the nature of the crime, the intent behind it, and, you know, imagining that they know better than a judge what the ideal punishment should be. You know, and that's not to say that judges get it right every single time. You know, I'm, I'm sure there are, there are sentences that, you know, we all might disagree with in individual cases, but if we're talking about on balance, you know, the person closest to the facts of the case is more likely uh, overall to get a better proportionate sentence um, more often. And I guess, you know, 
if you if you look at a lot of the history of these mandatory minimums, right, they were mostly put in place uh, in the 1990s after national crime rates started declining. So uh, when folks tell you that you know these were necessary to reduce crime and they were the thing that you know turned this spiraling out of control crime crisis around, the data about long-term crime crime trends really shows us that they, they, they got the cause and effect backwards. It, the, the science of criminology in general is you know, very complicated and, and still kind of an open question about what causes sort of these broader societal crime trends. But one thing that relatively certain about just based on when crime started going down in a broader sense and then when mandatory minimums were put in place is that they clearly weren't the main factor driving this change. They may have contributed a little bit, but even as even as they were put in place and you know our our uh, prison populations were going up, crime went down, but that's because it was continuing a previous trend of decline that had happened before these sentences were put in place. You know, I think and, of Mark you know, Twain. Recently, I think of Mark Twain where he said there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. This is a statistic. And so often when I hear these statistics, I think to myself, or, and I, th- I think, honestly, uh, more people should ask this question. What was it doing before that? <laughs> you know, we, we, we const- like you just said, we constantly hear this. It, look, at this is the result. Well, correlation doesn't equal causation. And what was it doing before that? And and, and between and more recently, there hasn't even been correlation. Um, you know, between 2008 and, and 2016, uh, you look at about, I think, 35 states were able to reduce both their prison populations and their crime rates simultaneously because that previous trend of declining crime rates contribute, uh, continued Sort of regardless of whether there was this harsh on crime or you know more smart on crime policy in place, which implies that we can safely take a more proportionate approach, you know, rather than sort of mandatory minimum heavy sentencing enhancement heavy status quo that we have. So break it down very clearly for me. Uh, we exist to break barriers. How is the current world of sentencing erecting barriers and how does our vision of sentencing break them there's a couple of different specific kinds of mandatory minimums in place that uh, you see in a lot of different places so uh, one kind of those are truth and sentencing laws those basically remove uh, discretion from prison officials once people are already convicted then prison officials and parole boards don't have the ability to offer someone who might be really well-behaved and really enthusiastic about participating in programming, which will ultimately you know, likely reduce someone's recidivism risk and better prepare them to re-enter society with a truth and sentencing law. Even if they're a model prisoner, they're by law required to serve a specific percentage of their sentence before they can even be considered for parole. Basically, and that's not to say that there aren't people that you know should just be behind bars the whole time. You know, we definitely know that, but merely giving parole boards the option 
to look at giving someone the opportunity for early release earlier, I don't consider that a huge threat. You know, merely having the option, I think, is crucial and a really important incentive to help drive participation in programs that will make prisoners' lives better off as they're uh, reentering the community and communities safer by extension. And, you know, another form of sentence enhancement that's mandatory that we often see are things like drug-free school zone ordinances, which you you hear something like that and kind of a third rail because you think, you know, I don't want drugs being sold in schools. And of course, absolutely right there with you. We definitely want to stop that from happening. The unfortunate thing about these sorts of policies is that they're kind of blunt instruments. So oftentimes you'll hear that within a thousand or fifteen hundred feet of a school zone, you know, which is usually just any any building that is considered school property, if you sell do like a normal selling drugs defense, you're gonna get, you know, an extra penalty on top of that because it's considered near a school. And this has no, this is regardless of what the context was. Ultimately, we want to be maybe reserving a penalty like that for specifically targeting students and children. But this could just be two people who have no connection to the school who didn't realize they happened to be in an alley somewhere within a thousand feet. We see police often purposefully stepping up enforcement in those areas, regardless of whether there's some school related content to the crime. You know, so there's there's a lot of a lot of stuff like that where you see this in many jurisdictions and it kind of unnecessarily drives up um, prison time without, you know, which both takes away from people's lives, their chances to, to come back and contribute to society past taxpayers and doesn't necessarily have a clear connection between the actual conduct, you know, and how severe that was and how long someone's staying in, in prison. It reminds me of the conversation I had with Greg where we talked about stacking and we've got these these laws. Like you said, they might not have even known they were there. And suddenly here's another charge. Here's another crime you've committed. And it goes back to just adding more and more time. When we think about sentencing, we, at least for me, speak for myself. When I think about sentencing, I'm automatically thinking about time in prison. With our vision on sentencing are are there uh, ideas out there or is there room for sentences that don't involve prison alternatives to prison where 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 are we on that a lot of the solutions we see they both they come down to one reducing the actual mandatory minimums we're talking about or eliminating them in some cases so that's that's one form but as you say you know there's a lot of things that we support too like allowing for uh, more diversionary courts, say for people who they certainly committed a crime, but it may be that there's a clear connection to some sort of substance abuse problem or a mental health issue that needs addressing that hasn't been so far. And again, kind of getting back to what I was talking about right at the beginning of addressing root issues behind someone's criminal conduct, a solution that might involve, you know, probation with rehabilitative programming as a condition to avoid having to go to prison might be more appropriate for someone. Um, expose them to less of those 
dangers of unnecessary exposure to prison that could increase their recidivism that I was talking about before ultimately be cheaper to taxpayers and help address their underlying issue, you know, without kind of the severe trauma that having to go to prison um, can give someone. You know, so we, we look at those sort of diversionary sentences. Also, you know, even for people who are in prison, increasing opportunities for those earned time credits for participating in programming, which was a huge part of the First Step Act as well, federally. When we start getting into the idea of the uh, mutually reinforcing principles, you start hearing, you know, the first one, of course, equal rights. Regarding sentencing and equal rights, I've, I've heard arguments that, that, you know, I don't really care about the rights of those who have broken the law. Put them in prison and let them out when they're done. Why should we care about equal rights when it comes to people who have violated the rights of others? Well, I think um, it's, you know, our justice system, certainly there there is an element within it that if you, if you do violate the rights of someone else, then it is important that you're held accountable for certain, but just because uh, we're doing that doesn't give us license to, um, you know, disrespect the individual dignity of someone who is in prison just because they're there. Um, part of holding someone accountable, kind of this concept in our justice system known as retribution, is that retribution is proportional uh, and, and no more severe than it need be to any of the conduct that's been committed. Again, you know, we, we want people to be held accountable when they've committed a crime. But at the same time, you know, we're kidding ourselves if we think that just being as harsh as possible in how we treat people in prison is going to improve the lives of people who are there and leave us safer in the long run. As you mentioned, you know, rightly, 95% of the estate prisoners are going to come back to our communities. And would you rather that, you know, your future neighbors leave prison when they've had no opportunities to build skills or maybe address some of the underlying issues that they took into prison with them? In my book, I'd rather people have the tools to be best equipped to have that opportunity to, you know, surmount whatever internal or external barriers help lead them to prison in the first place. I also think, of, and it's just, it's on my mind because I was literally just reading about a story here in Missouri where a man who was wrongly accused, sent to prison, he's now getting an $8 million settlement from the state. But it reminds us that the criminal justice system is run by flawed individuals. We're all flawed individuals. We all make mistakes. And there are people out there who may be doing their best and they make a mistake. There are also people out there who are not that not that good on the integrity scale that may be trying to get ahead and so they're going to railroad someone. But we, the criminal justice system is a, is a flawed institution, just like many, well, I would say all institutions created by men. They, they are going to be failures. They're going to be successes. But just because someone has been found guilty and, and has been sentenced does not mean that we should ignore their rights, should not, we should not, like you said, ignore their, their dignity, and we should be giving these folks the best possible opportunity to return and contribute rather than to say, you've hurt someone, 
we're casting you away. You are you cannot be redeemed. They will come back. They will be released. They need to be prepared and set up for success as contributors rather than set up as career criminals. Particularly in, in as you say, looking back to our vision and and really looking at the world with best possible potential for helping people maximize their potential and, and remove those barriers to it. Permanently tarring people with a, a scarlet letter because of and permanently judging them for their decision on their worst day of their lives, basically, you know, that that's not a outlook that's going to help as many people self-actualize nearly as they could. There's this speaker on uh, YouTube, actually, that I've been watching a little bit during quarantine. It's this, this former jewel thief named Larry Lawton, who uh, robbed a bunch of jewelry stores in uh, South Florida and up through New York and everything. And he's had this really interesting story of his time growing up, getting involved. And this is absolutely like a career criminal, kind of an exception to the rule of many people we're talking about, but has a lot of really interesting stories about his time in prison and injustices he experienced and witnessed to other people there. And, you know, since then, he himself has actually totally different outlook is massively reformed you know has kind of freely said he feels like he was a completely different person at the time that he was committing a lot of his crimes completely different mindset and outlook about the future you know the importance of family things like that he often maintains that he doesn't believe in bad people he believes in bad choices and that people can really dramatically change over time you know, and I think that kind of goes a lot with a lot of what we know about neuroscience too. Um, this concept of neuroplasticity, you know, over time, the structure of your brain really significantly changing. And I, I don't think that the way someone is as a person, like in one decade at all, necessarily corresponds with how they're going to be a decade or two going forward. I right. think you know that I'm, could I'm, apply for you or I both as as well as people. Yeah, I was going to say I'm not the same person I was a decade ago. We we all have different experiences, and that all all changes us. And you know, there was something I read a, a long time ago uh, that lends itself to what you were saying, and it was the mind is like plastic. Once it's stretched, it never returns to its original form, which is why I, I enjoy uh, working with people and introducing new ideas because they may not change their mind right then, but I've stretched their mind a little bit. It'll never be the same, and they'll they'll consider that in the future. Moving to mutual benefit, when I think of the criminal justice system and mutual benefit, or sentencing specifically and mutual benefit, the purpose of the criminal justice system is to keep society safe. It is in our benefit as taxpayers, if when a person is sentenced to you know for crime, that when their sentence is over, they are prepared to return to society and be contributors not takers. So a sentencing system that allows for that would be mutually beneficial. What have I missed? I think that's a, a great way to characterize it. You know, having a more proportionate sentencing system in place um, gives people for whom the experience alone of being in prison is perhaps like just the wake up call someone might need. 
um, the opportunity to turn their lives around and get back on the straight and narrow with you know the, the least possible damage to their relationships with their loved ones and you know their ties to the larger community and it doesn't preclude people for whom that experience isn't enough from you know being sentenced longer periods of time if that's needed you know in talking about a more proportionate sentencing system we're not being naive in saying that there aren't some people who don't absolutely belong in prison we completely accept this um, it's just the notion of there being a lot more people in prison for a lot longer time than need to be there and making sure that we can still keep our community safe while minimizing the damage to the fabric of society that keeping people in prison longer than necessary can do. We've talked a bit about openness already, openness in, in the free flowing of knowledge, and that knowledge needs to be applied uh, proportionally or appropriately so we can have better sentencing. We do not have that openness when we have mandatory minimums. Yet another example of, of the, uh, the fallacy of central planning. Central planning justice should be something that should terrify anyone who, who knows anything about the failures of central planning. What other components of openness can we think of when we think about sentencing other than the free flow of knowledge and its application? Well, I think... It pretty much hits the nail on the head, you know, where there has been more openness and transparency about crime statistics and the sort of before and after of various sentencing policies. We've seen, you know, pretty good results in the sense that, you know, we're not claiming that uh, crimes going down because of more proportionate sentencing, but really that you can continue to see crime decreases without the destructive effects of these these tough on crime sentences. So, I mean, you know, in the last decade, you've seen states like Connecticut, Michigan, uh, Mississippi, Rhode Island, and South Carolina all sort of reduce some of their mandatory minimum restrictions and, you know, still safely see their prison populations decrease while without seeing uh, crime increases. Uh, Mississippi in 2008, 2013 expanded a lot of their sentencing credits and basically from 2008 to 2018 i believe their prison population went down by over a fifth so again where that data is available to see the results of a lot of these initiatives it's been clear that it's been able to safely reduce those populations save taxpayers a lot the process um, without you know, significantly impacting pre-existing trends of decreasing crime. And so to the extent that we know then that we can better rely on judges as those local decision makers to best tailor the facts of their case, you know, another policy we favor is expanding things called safety valves, which is a great mechanism for allowing judges to depart from those mandatory minimums. They usually say, hey, if you have a criminal history below a certain threshold of, you know, various defenses in the past. If you're, you know, helping cooperate with law enforcement, maybe this is only your first or second offense, then uh, give you the opportunity for the judge to depart from that mandatory minimum. That's a good sort of intermediate step between getting rid of a mandatory minimum that shouldn't exist altogether. But again, another application there for that free flow of information to help lead to better decisions. The final 
mutually reinforcing principles, self-actualization. I'm going to leave this one all to you. How are we applying our sentencing through the lens of self-actualization? I think uh, self-actualization is probably actually the most important principle here to think about. This is ultimately, and I think maybe this is all the more prescient for all of us who are, you know, stuck in our homes and, and not able to do all the different activities we enjoy just for a couple of months here in, in the lockdown. And you think about the experience of being in a scary prison for multiple years and the family relationships you lose, you know, the birthdays, the weddings, the graduations, the funerals that you're not able to attend um, because you are incarcerated and cut off from those you value the most in your lives. This is ultimately about people's liberty. And it's true that when people commit crimes, we should still hold them accountable. But as the evidence shows, I think in a lot more cases than we currently acknowledge, there are ways to do that that are less destructive towards um, people maintaining those relationships with those that they treasure in their lives and without uh, impeding their ability to pursue their you know, individual goals and, and hopes and dreams to become all they can be. Um, it's clear that we can still do what needs to be done in terms of public safety without taking away that promise for so many people in the way that we unfortunately currently do with um, wildly disproportionate sentences. Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's top priority, please email them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks again for listening.